I need to tell you to begin with this morning, I am somewhat of a rebel. I have been known from time to time to live on the edge. And there's one particular area in my life where, irregardless of how much I've learned, how intelligent I ought to be, I continue to do that. And I found as I've studied people, and I mean just looking around doesn't take an in-depth study to know this, that there are many of you like me, especially men who live on the edge in this one area. What I'm talking about is I like to drive my little truck when the little hand there is below E. I don't enjoy stopping at the gas station. And generally when I do, I know the logic, I know the math, and I know sometimes gas prices rise and fall. But I'm guilty of just getting just enough to get to my destination. For instance, my little truck gets about 24 miles to the gallon. So I know if I plan to go to Meridian, maybe to visit someone in the hospital, I need to get about four gallons, and I can get over there and back. Now, I don't always do it that literally, but I always watch that little dial spin, and I decide just what I need to get by. That's a problem. Mostly men, if you do that, you know that's a problem, and that causes problems even in your marriage, believe it or not. Because more times than not, your wife does not live on the edge, at least in that one area. She wants that tank to be filled. She wants to be sure that wherever it is she's going, she's got plenty of fuel to get there. She doesn't like living on fumes. Now, I'll tell you how bad I am. I'm so bad that on more than one occasion, I have just came close to running out. I remember one time coming down the interstate. My family wasn't with me, so maybe they don't know this. I was coming back here. I got to Bessemer, Alabama. Thank God the exit ramp is downhill because it quit, basically. But you can coast right in, and there's a gas station just there to your right, and if you really speed up before you know what's going to happen, you can make it, and I did. I have ran out of gas on the side of the road. And I'll give you a trick, man. If you don't want to be embarrassed, you can pop your hood, and everybody will assume there's a mechanical problem. You don't have to admit you're out of gas. You can ask for a ride or call someone based on that premise. So you see, I like living my life on the edge. And I like trying to go through life in that aspect at least on fumes, but that's dangerous, isn't it? First thing you think about in that is if you do run out of fuel, where do you have to go? To the side of the road. If you're unable to get to the side of the road, where might you end up? Well, you might end up in the middle of the road, and if that be the case, you just might be rear-ended. And I don't know why it occurs this way, but so many I've seen run out of gas right in the midst of an intersection. So it can be dangerous to live your life on fumes, but it's not nearly as dangerous as the way, unfortunately, many of us, including myself, often live our lives on fumes when it comes to prayer. Absolutely the greatest opportunity, the greatest privilege that a Christian has is the privilege and opportunity to pray. And when I try to go through my daily life without prayer, I'm trying to live my life on fumes. 
And the problem is, when I run out of gas, I'm at the side of the road. I'm not in the road. And there is only one road, one path, one way that leads to God. And if it would occur that I would run out of gas in the midst of a road, I could be rear-ended or side-swiped in that intersection by someone called Satan, or at least one of his cohorts, his workers. Why do we live that way? Why do you and I oftentimes, and maybe we are ready to admit this, fail when it comes to our prayer life? I tell you, it ought not be that way. If you want to turn your attention this morning back into the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, we're going to begin reading there in verse 5. And we're going to discuss the matter that I'm going to call for this purpose, a prayer we must utter. The first few verses here we'll read, verses 5 through 8, if you'll read them with me, says this, And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thine closet, and when thou hast shut the door, pray that thy Father, which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when thou pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them. For your Father knoweth of what things ye have need of before you ask him. Now we're going to continue in this context in just a moment, but we need to stop here so that we do not lose our thought. Under this heading, a prayer that we must utter, I want you to see to begin with, there is a motive for prayer. There's prayer's motive. There is a way or a reason, an attitude that we must use in order to be heard of God. And when you really break that down, you go a little bit farther in this, you'll notice it there in verses 5 through 8. You'll notice to begin with that there is a prayer or a form of a prayer at least, a type of prayer that God rejects. Reviewing the verse there, verse 5, for instance, says, And when thou prayest. Now, I want you to realize when we read this, these terms, when thou prayest, these are all what we would call imperative terms. And it's Christ saying to us, when you do pray, implying that we must. But he said, when thou prayest, he gives us a word of warning, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. Why? For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets that they may be seen of men. And when you realize this, you have to know God is rejecting this kind of prayer. The very next verse, he turns and corrects our way of thinking to show us how we ought to pray. Now, what types of prayer does God reject? If it is possible for a child of God, that's to whom he's speaking, these are his disciples, if it is possible for a child of God to pray and not be praying right, I need to know how that occurs. And the first thing he mentions here is what I'm going to call a boasting prayer. He has a boasting prayer that he discusses here. He says these men enjoy or they love to stand in the synagogues. He goes on to say that they enjoy or they love to be heard or to be seen of men. Now what is God condemning here? Well, many have misunderstood this passage and they believe that the passage has something to do with the position and the place of prayer. And that's not the case. It only has to do with the purpose. 
It doesn't matter the position. You see, these men, he says, they are those who are standing in the synagogues. Is there something wrong with standing in the synagogues? No, not within itself, there's not. As a matter of fact, when you give consideration to that, you have to understand that there is an authorization in Scripture, and oftentimes it is seen in Scripture where we ought to pray in the assembling of people. We ought not say, well, we shouldn't have any type of a prayer gathering, or sometimes people call it a prayer meeting at the church. That's authorized in God's Word. Some say this denies that. We ought not say, well, we cannot pray in the restaurant or we cannot pray out in public because when we do that, we might be like one of these hypocrites or we of these heathens and we might be seen as one who would like to stand in the synagogues and such. We can't say that. You see, it was typical in that day that these men would go out, and I mean the hypocritical type at least, they would go out in their daily lives. And they would conduct their daily lives, you would assume, as normal because in that day the rabbis had developed a system of which they would pray to God on two occasions a day. The Jews had adapted that, gone a little step further, and they made now three times a day that they would pray to God. And each time that they would pray, they would always stop whatever they were doing, irregardless when the clock would strike a certain time, they would stop, they would turn their faces to Jerusalem and raise their arms and begin to pray. In essence, then they prayed when they knew they needed to pray and didn't let anything stand in the way. Now, can we respect that? We ought. But here's the problem. As described here in the Scripture, and the history would back this up, what these men were generally likely to do at least is they may be out in the field working or they may be in this place or in that, but when it got close to the time to pray, they had a habit at least of making their way down to the synagogue or making their way on to those street corners, and you ask why, the Bible answers it, so that they might be seen of men. Therefore, let me ask myself some questions. Even if I'm in the worship service, let's say that I open the bulletin on a Sunday morning and I notice, hey, you have, I have opening prayer. How am I to pray? I'm afraid in such a way as to not be seen by man. I'm not to pray in such a way as to try to use flowering terms, which we'll see a little bit later. I'm not to pray in such a way as to try to draw the attention of men to myself. Maybe I'm out in public. How am I to pray? You might not say if I'm in a large group that I ought not pray? No, I need to pray. I must pray. I must thank God for what I do. But is that to say that when I'm in that place, I ought to just stand up with the loudest voice I can, get all the attention of all the patrons in that place, and say, I'm going to offer a prayer to God, and I hope that you'll participate? No, that's more along the lines of what these men would do. And the term says, when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrite. So what does God reject? He rejects, therefore, the boasting prayer. He rejects the babbling prayer. You have to skip verse 6 to get this, but you move on to verse 7 to read it again. He said, but when ye pray, use not, what? Vain repetitions as the heathen do. Now, he said one, one group was a hypocrite, the next group is a heathen, but use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. I've heard some of my brethren, I'll admit to you, one of the brethren I know standing here in this body behind this suit used to think about this and say, well, we need to be careful that when we pray, we don't just pray the same prayer over and over. 
We need to be careful when we pray that we don't just say the same thing over and over because the problem is we are warned in the Scripture not to reciprocate or not to repeat time and time again the same old thing. I think we're putting the emphasis on the wrong word. It's not a matter of repetition. You say, how can you be sure? Well, you think about it. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed three times and he prayed three times for the same thing. He said, Father, if it be thy will, not my will, but if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Three times he prayed that. You find the Apostle Paul discussing on one occasion his thorn in the flesh, and he said even then, and thrice he besought God that God would remove from him that thorn in the flesh. It has nothing to do with repetition. It has everything to do with that word vain. Don't pray an empty prayer. I may listen to someone pray or hear someone pray in public and they say certain things, they use certain terms, they use certain phrases, ways of saying things, and I say, you know, that's a good way to approach the throne of God. That's exactly what I think. That's exactly what needs to be said to God. And then I may stand up next Lord's Day as I lead a public prayer or I may go into my closet as we'll be instructed to do in a minute and I may sit down and I may use those words but they are only vain if they do not come from my heart. God rejects. He absolutely rejects these kinds of prayers. He rejects that which is boasting and babbling. But what types of prayers does God receive? I can go on and on and I can list types of prayers that God may reject and I can flower these things up and make them more understandable. But what type of prayer does God receive? Well, verse 6, right smack between verses 5, 7, and 8, he says, but when thou prayest. Now, he warns them, do not pray as the hypocrite does. Do not pray as the heathen might, but pray this way. When thou prayest, enter into thine closet. Now, you're going to have to focus on that phrase in a moment. And when thou hast shut the door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which is in secret shall reward thee openly. So what does he accept? He receives the secret prayer. Now, how literal am I to take that? I've heard some of my own brethren before say that we ought not be leading in these public prayers. They're basing it on this scripture. And then they turn and say, when we do pray, we need to go into a literal closet. Was that right? Well, there is a time when I know Jim Merle, I don't know about you necessarily, but there is a time when Jim Merle seems to have more uh, focus and seems to have more effectiveness in my prayers at least when I do go into a literal closet. I don't generally use ours at home, but I use this office right here oftentimes bright and early in the morning. I arrive at the building. One of the first things I might do is pray. Pray to God. Say, God, I'm about to try to study your word. I'm about to try to do this. I'm about to do that. And I want to thank you for what I've been able or, or at least given the opportunity to do here today. But should we do that? We should take that as kind of an opportunity. But if you go back and you study the terms that are found here, you'll see that word closet. When he encourages us to go into our closet, what you'll find is in the Greek language, this word literally means your storehouse. Now, does that change anything? 
well, you may go into a closet and it may be an empty room. It may be a private room. Your focus may be there. But you think about if you were to go into your pantry. Not everyone's blessed in this way. Not everyone has a storehouse or a pantry in their home or anywhere around them where they have food, where they have different things that they need, that they use every day to survive. But imagine a man who goes into his pantry or goes into his closet that is filled with garments, filled with things that he's able to use to live. And he turns to those things as he prays and he can thank God individually. I thank God for this or I thank God for that. Not necessarily a can of pork and beans, but I thank God that I have an opportunity to have these things. He can set your focus. You see, a man who prays in secret cannot be therefore said to be guilty of trying to pray in a public manner just to be seen of men. I think the question I might ought to ask myself is how many times do I pray in secret versus how many times I purposefully pray in public? I don't know that there ought to be real balance there. Maybe the emphasis ought to be on the one. But not only would God receive the secret prayer, the thing that's really focused on here is not so much that as he receives the sincere prayer. Now this is really the antithesis, that is to say it is the back opposite or the opposing view of what he's already said. Again, reading verses 5 and 7 and 8 again, he said, When thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. Why? What's wrong with them? For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets that they may be seen of men. He goes on to say, verse 7, But when you pray, use not vain repetitions, who? As the heathens do, for they think they shall be heard for their much speaking. Then he finishes it by saying in verse 8, But be ye not therefore like unto them, that is the hypocrite, and also the heathen, for your Father knoweth the things ye have need of before ye ask them. God wants to hear a sincere prayer from his children. Now what makes a sincere prayer? Well, I'll tell you what, a sincere prayer is not one that is an attempt to impress God. I learned several years ago, and I don't necessarily uh, understand it all. I have to think hard on it. I have to focus on it and recheck myself constantly on it. But I learned several years ago, you don't have to be Shakespeare to pray to God. And contrary to what many of my brethren have taught in the past, now I believe there is a way of respect. We need to be respectful when we speak to God, and we need to use the most proper language we can or is available to us in our minds when we speak to God, but we don't have to use King James English to pray to God. Now that may shock some of our brethren, but that's true. We're not praying to impress him. We're not praying to impress these men in the context either. I heard a true story of a man several years ago, just a country bumpkin, as we might call him, one of, one of us, who went on a little trip. He stopped in in a big city church there in a big city congregation, walked in the door, and one of the people in the back there tapped him on the shoulder and introduced himself, and before long he invited him to lead the opening prayer. He got up, he led the opening prayer, he said what he wanted to say, he prayed to God according to God's pattern, we'll mention it in just a moment. He got done with that, he made his way to the back of the building there after the service was over, and a lady came up to him and she said, I have never in my life have I heard any English any worse than yours. That was so terrible, that was so disrespectful. You ought not even find yourself praying in public. You need to keep that stuff to yourself. 
And on and on she went and critiqued some of the actual words. And finally he said, well, that's okay, ma'am, because I wasn't talking to you. That's about right. We don't pray to impress God. We cannot pray to impress men. And those who do are not praying sincere. Therefore, they are not praying the types of prayers that God can receive. But I'll tell you something else. You do not pray to inform God. That comes down to the verse that we just read. Be not therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things you have need of when? Before you ask Him. You ever found yourself at least in mind praying to God and saying, God, uh, do you see this problem I'm in the midst of here? Do you see this, this trouble, this trial? Do you see this difficulty? God, I don't know if you're paying attention or not, but things are getting rough down here on earth. God knows that. Or turning to God and saying, God, I don't know if you have noticed, but God, I have been quite the servant of yours here lately. <laughs> I can't think of a Sunday yet. I've missed this month. I can't think of a service that's been available. God, I hope you're taking notice of this because I'm doing just what you would have me to do. If that is the case, God knows that, but he does not know it from my actions. He knows it from my heart. He knows what I, what you have need of even before we ask. Sincere prayers do not. They do not impress God. They in turn do not turn and try to inform God, I'll tell you something else, they better not instruct God. You ever been guilty of that? I have. God, here's, here's what's going on in my life, and I know you know that. And here's what we need to do. Well, it, it is the case that it's what we need to do, but not from human perspective. I can't turn and tell God as, as often I find it happening. Let's just say, let's make a scenario. We have a man or a woman who's, who's out of work and they say to God, you know, God, I've got an interview in the morning and this is with a really good company, a really good place, a lot of opportunity there. So here's what I need you to do, God. I'm going to go into that interview and I want you to be sure that I do everything just right, God, because you see, it's going to be up to you whether or not I get this job. Is that a true statement in some senses? But it's not mine to instruct. Because what generally happens when we think that way, i tell you how it happened in my life. You then turn and when it doesn't work out, you say, God, what, didn't I tell you what we need to do? Why don't we do it? A sincere prayer is not the type of prayer that tries to impress or inform or instruct. I'll tell you what it does do, and it does this every time if it is sincere. It only invites God. I know when we've come through this context before, we covered the whole of the chapter one time before. When we came through this, I used the same illustration. I'll use it again. Let's suppose that we have a man. Let's suppose the man is me, and I get an opportunity to fly in an airplane. I really have no desire, especially one of this type. But let's suppose I have an opportunity to fly in an airplane. It's a small airplane, maybe a twin engine, not even a, a jet, just a little twin engine airplane. Let's suppose there's no one in the airplane but me and the pilot. And the pilot tells me, why don't you just slip up here and sit in this co-pilot seat? I say, okay, I'll do it. He says, do you want to fly the plane? I said, well, what, what must I do? Well, you just kind of hold the stick. Just hold it steady. We're going right where we need to go. I take hold of that stick. He lets go of his own. Am I flying the airplane? Yes. But I tell you what, he doesn't need me to fly that airplane, but I certainly need him there. God doesn't need me when I pray, but I certainly need him. 
And I have to invite him to be part of my flight path in life. And I do that through prayer. You see, these are the prayers that God rejects. And yes, these are the prayers that God receives. But that all has to do with prayer's motive. I cannot, you cannot, we cannot, no one can pray to God except their motive be right. But you'll recognize the next few verses. The Bible continues on there in verse 9, Jesus saying, And after this matter, therefore pray ye. Now I want to point out in Luke's account of this, and you have to go over to Luke chapter 11 to see it, verse 1 to begin with, those disciples there have seen him praying that day. They've already witnessed him in prayer, and they turn and actually ask him, Lord, teach us to pray. There are a lot of things I would love for the Lord to teach me to do, but they give us a fine example in that they never once ask Him to teach us to preach. They never once ask Him, Lord, teach us to teach. They never once ask Him, Lord, teach us to be evangelistic. They never once ask Him for any of those things. The only question they ever ask of our Lord in this manner is, Lord, teach us to pray, and He does. But Matthew records it after this manner. Therefore pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I've heard this being called the Lord's Prayer. I think more properly it could be called, though, the model prayer. There's prayer's motive, but there's prayer's model. This is the example Jesus gives. Now, you can go and read other gospel accounts such as that in Luke, and you will find the basics of this prayer in every one of those occasions. You'll find them to be absolutely the same. The wording, the recollection may be different, and I believe it's because Jesus taught this prayer on more than one occasion to more than one group of people. But the gist of it's always there. And so if there's a model, if there's a model of how to pray, shouldn't I take heed to it? Well, here it is. Notice the first phrase. He says, Our Father, which art in heaven. Now what does that teach well, in my mind, it teaches me to have connection. There has to be a connection in order for one to pray. There has to be a connection made in order for me to speak to the Father which is in heaven. I have to put two and two together. I have to ask the question, first of all, who is this Father? Well, we have physical fathers. Sometimes we have even emotional fathers. But there's none better than the spiritual Father. And the spiritual father, not a, but the, is God. Now how do I connect with him through Christ? No other way. Jesus allows us to do that. I heard this tale of one occasion when a man was sitting on a park bench one evening and he was crying his eyes out. I mean, he was just overwhelmed with tears and, and distress. A little boy came up to the park bench, came, sat next to him, and finally the little boy asked the man, he said, why, why are you crying? What's the matter? He said, well, my son has been convicted of a crime that he did not commit. 
And he's set to be hung in just a matter of days. And I would give anything in the world if I could only talk to the president. President Lincoln's the only one that could get my son off the hook and pardon him so he would not have to be convicted because we don't have time for another trial. The true story goes, the little boy took the man by the hand and said, come with me. They walked down the street and around the corner and up a hill and into a house, past the guards and right into the president's office. The man was amazed until Abraham Lincoln opened his mouth and said, what do you need, son? How do we get to God? Through the son. We can't come into the office of the president, if you will, I'm using that loosely, of the universe without we come by the way of his son, and that takes connection. He said, is our father which is in heaven. That's not connected to us today except it be by the son. But notice the next phrase. We don't use this word much anymore unless we're praying this prayer. Hallowed be thy name. What does that teach? Adoration. That teaches nothing but adoration. That implies that I adore God, that I set God where he ought to be. Now the word hallowed there that we have to understand literally means to be holy, but it carries with it not so much that as it carries the idea that this is one who is set apart from us. And in particular, he said this set apart, this holy name is the name of who? God. Hallowed be thy name. Now, if John be correct, then we know that he is. John 1, verses 1 to 3, God and Christ are one and the same. And so when Luke would pen the book of Acts on behalf of God through his inspiration, Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, and he would say there, there is none of the name given among men whereby we must be saved. He spoke of the name of Jesus. Why? Because that name is separate. It's above every other name. Lord teaches me to find connection. He teaches me to find a level of adoration to adore God. But keep reading there. Hallowed be thy name. He goes on to say this. We often like to avoid this phrase in the church. I don't know that we should. I just think we ought to apply it correctly. He says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Now we see that phrase, thy kingdom come, and we have to understand, and we don't have time to get into all of it this morning, but I'll tell you it this way, the kingdom has come. Christ, the matter of fact, hosts his disciples. Some of you standing here will not taste death until you see the, watch it, kingdom come with power. Either the kingdom has come or all of those 12 apostles are still alive and walking around Philadelphia, Mississippi, or somewhere else. The kingdom's come, it's the church. But we read that phrase and we're so apprehensive about it, I know I missed, maybe not you, but I missed the point. What's the point? The Lord teaches us when we pray to have a sense of expectation. Not just connection, not just adoration, expectation now are there things in this life that I can't expect yes I need expect one if I expect nothing else I need to expect that when the Lord promised he would return as he does John 14 verses 1 to 3 is the one we quote most often he says there that they ought not be troubled why because he is going to prepare a place for them and he will come again unto them I need to expect that But not only does he teach that, you keep reading here. 
He goes on to say in this, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is, like saying already is in heaven. Now how is the will of God done in heaven? Well, you can only know it's done perfectly. God rules, God reigns that kingdom perfectly, totally, and fully, and all of the inhabitants there, which in our sight today would be basically the angels of heaven, they obey Him, they adore Him perfectly. Now what does this speak? It's a very easy word, submission. It's Christ's prayer, it ought to be my prayer, that the earth where we dwell, where we live, be in submission to God the way heaven already is. Now, does that occur? No. Is it occurring? No. Might it occur? No. doesn't seem that way according to Scripture. But there has to be a level of submission. But then you notice verse 11. If you've ever prayed this prayer in your life, I'll tell you the first time you prayed it, I don't have to know anything about you to say it. You prayed it when you were in grade school right before you went to lunch. Because verse 11 says, Give us this day our daily bread. What is that? That's petition. That means that I beg or I ask, I lay at the feet of God and I ask of Him for something. Now what is that something? Well, literally stated here, it is give us this day our daily bread. Now what can I focus on to really learn from this? I want to focus on the word daily. I don't know how many times, and I'm not saying this necessarily wrong, but I need to correct my thinking, I believe sometimes even. I pray to God and I say, God, keep me for all of my life. As long as I have to live, God, keep me, provide for me. And the word bread here implies within it food. It implies within it the basics of clothing and shelter and other things. And I say, God, provide for me all of my life. That's not what he taught us to pray. He said, you pray and you pray for your daily bread. Now put this in its context. The term daily bread in the first century was often used between a master and a slave. It was used in that relationship. And here's the deal. A master would give a slave, if a slave, say, had to run an errand, maybe let's just make up a scenario, he had to run to the next farm over and borrow something or had to run and do some work, maybe help out a friend, that slave would be provided by law, by the master, he would be provided a daily portion of bread. He had to. He couldn't say just be on your way and hope you run across something on your way. He had to offer him a daily portion of bread, just enough to get by. Why? Well, the hope was that in that day, sadly, he thought, well, if he runs out of food, he'll come back. That's not really correct thinking in all of its standards, but that's the way that it was. In addition to that, what am I to God? I'm a child of God, I'm a servant, therefore I am a slave, and all I have the right then to ask of God is my daily bread. You say, you better prove that, preacher. I'll prove it right here. When the Jewish nation, the Israelites, were wandering in the wilderness, and God offered to them manna, how much manna did he allow them to gather on the first six days of that week? The answer is clear. One day's worth. They gathered any more, it would spoil within its houses. They gathered one day until the sixth day now. On the sixth day, they had to gather enough for that day and the Sabbath, and only on that day would God provide for them. Give us this day our daily bread. That's a petition. 
Look at the next verse. And forgive us of our debts. Now, the word debts here, more properly translated, or more properly understood at least, implies a sin. It implies an obligation that is owed as a result of sin. I sin, therefore I owe it to God to not sin, to do something different, and my debt has to be paid. Now who pays it? Christ pays it. That's Colossians 2.14 in the context if you want to read it. Christ pays that. That's the blood that was shed, Acts 20.28, Revelation 1 and verse 5. Christ pays that debt. But what does this mean? Well, I want to imply the word confession here. It's too easy, especially when I'm before the throne of God. God, I'm holy enough to speak. I'm ready to talk. I'm ready to, to allow you to do something in my life. So God, I am set. And you owe it. No, only thing he ever owed man, he gave man, and that was the debt for his sins. So what does he ask? He confesses his sin when he says, forgive us our debts. Look at the last phrase in that verse, verse 12. As we forgive our debtors. Well, that has nothing to do with our own confession, but it has to do with our own compassion toward other people. God, if I want to be forgiven of my sin, then I need to be expected to then in turn forgive others of their sin. Now, is that an open door? No, Christ told us that if a man would come to thee and ask for forgiveness, when or if, he said, if, that's conditional, if he repent, forgive him. I can't just go around forgiving all the world. Christ can only do that. And he doesn't choose to do that, by the way, until a man repents. That's why repentance is a part of salvation and continuing in. But it shows compassion. But then we see in verse 13, and lead us not into temptation. Now does Christ, does God lead us in temptation? Well, no. James tells us, James chapter 1, verse 13 through 15, that God does not tempt men. God cannot be tempted, he says, neither tempteth he any man. He goes on to explain the next two verses, 14 and 15, that that temptation comes from within the old man and within his own lusts when he's drawn away and enticed, and he ultimately tells us that will result in our death. But he starts with God does not tempt you. So what does this mean? The idea here is test. And the idea there seems to be Christ instructing us to pray that we have protection. Protection from what? Protection from being led into a temptation that we cannot overcome. Now, is there any danger in that? Not really. You're going to write in your margin, you can write right beside this text, at least 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13, which tells us that with every temptation, that's actually a test or a trial, God provides a way of escape. If I fall to sin, and I mean I fall, and I fall down flat on my face, I can't turn back to God and say, God, that was just too much for me. I could not handle it. I could not endure it. And it's your fault. No, he provides a way of escape. Maybe I didn't find that way, but it was there. But look at the way he closes. It's actually similar to the way he begins. The latter part there, verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. What is that? That is recognition. Christ taught us through this prayer, continues through this day to teach as we read it, to have connection with God. I've got to be connected to God through him. 
Christ in turn teaches and taught us that we ought to have adoration for God and lest I'm willing to lift God up to put Him where He is which is separate from me and above me, I cannot pray. God in turn taught in the phrases here that we ought to have an expectation about us not for the kingdom to come but for the kingdom to continue and we know that it will and that I can be a part of it. He teaches us that the only way I can do that is through my submission of knowing that God is the God of heaven and that He is control of all. Through my petition, that is begging of Him that my prayers be answered, that my sins be let loose. Through compassion, that I do that to other people, that I afford them what God already affords me. Through protection, and that is from the evil one here, he states, and that is from the temptation that is sent by Him and through the recognition of what? Well, the place of God and His power. He said, for thine is the kingdom. Where is the kingdom? It's here on earth in the church, but more so than that, it's in heaven. Where is the power? It's with God. There are men who control this United States. There are men who attempt to control this world. And they do on some levels, but none of them exceed the power that God has, irregardless of what they may think. This is a prayer that we must utter. Being sure of its motive and taking from God its method. If you're here today and you're not a child of God's, I don't know that your motive could be correct because when you get to that model, the first thing that may be amiss in your life is that connection. If you've not put on Christ today through hearing God's Word, that is to know what God's Word says and then in turn to believe it, Christ tells us, except you believe that I am he, ye shall die in your sins, John 8, 24. Except one should in turn be willing, therefore, to repent of his sins. That's a part of what is listed even within the prayer itself, that we know, that we understand that we have debts, and that those debts need to be turned from and released. Christ instructs us to do that through the confession that we make, through knowing that we ought to be baptized. Why? Because Christ instructed us to do it, Mark 16 and 16. Peter told those on the day of Pentecost the very same thing. And except anyone lose the point, he mentioned in his own writing later that baptism does now also save us. If I don't have that, I don't have prayer's motive, and I cannot address prayer's model. But if you're here today and you are a child of God's, I pray to God that you're faithful in that, and I pray that we would find a way to pray. You say, that sounds like circular reason. I pray that we would find a way to pray according to God's pattern so that we could be heard. Not to boast, not to babble, but to do it in secret and out of sincerity. How can we do that? By having the sin washed from our life. If sin has occurred in our lives, once again, we come to God through repentance and prayer. Why together we stand as we sing?